welcome to the Unpruned Interview. My name is Sarah Brown, and this is the first in a series of Garden Organic Interviews, where we let our interviewees chat at length on subjects that are close to their heart. Often the topic is too important or too riveting for us to press the edit button. In gardening terms, you could say we're happy to leave their words unpruned. My first guest talks about food. As the country's biggest employer, the food industry plays a vital part in our health, society, the environment and the economy. We discuss the paradox of malnutrition and obesity. Can the world feed 10 billion people without damaging ecosystems? So here is Garden Organics President, Professor Tim Lang. Lang is Head of City, University London's Centre for Food Policy. He's been engaged in academic research and debate about food policy both locally and globally. He's been a consultant to the World Health Organization, a special advisor to four House of Commons select committees, and a consultant on food security to the Royal Institute of International Affairs at Chatham House. And despite his busy schedule, I had time to catch up with him earlier this year at the Garden Organic Annual Conference. Professor Lang, thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to kick off straight away with what is food policy and why is it important? I always say that food policy is like uh, foreign policy. It's the policy bits that go on food. In practice, what it means is it's about the decisions that shape who eats what, when, where. In practice, too, um, in the last half century, food policy has become an area of public policy in which food is seen as an integration point. Food and the environment, food and health, food and diet, food and industry, food and farming, and so on. And so food policy in its 21st century form is thrashing out, or the area where we thrash out um, what the shape of the food system is. And I used a phrase, public policy. Um, Historically, that has meant the state. In modern food policy, and I've been part of that, we articulate it as no longer being just about the state. You cannot understand the dynamics of the food system if you just say it's about what governments do. Very often, it's government who is the last to arrive at making decisions. Civil society big and small companies, uh, foreign governments can often intervene and act upon what you think of as your food system. So to summarise, food policy is the, the area, and now academic discussion of, where we and a society talks about what it wants from its food system. What are the dynamics? What direction is it going in? But it's about the decision-making. It's about responding to problems, driving futures, setting goals. It's about decisions. It's about decisions about food. And I guess it affects us all because we all eat food. But it goes beyond the eating, doesn't it? Because it's the growing of it, the moving of it, the processing the selling of it. This is all the aspects of food. Food is the biggest employer on the planet. Um, The estimates vary. Um, Bits of the UN, the International Labour Organization, for example, have estimated 
uh, food employs 1.3, 1.4 billion people out of 7.5 billion people. Maybe half a billion of those unwaged, people literally living hand-to-mouth. But nonetheless, their, their daily work is about food. Even in a rich, advanced capitalist society like Britain, um, food is our biggest employer, actually. People are always stunned. Uh, I play games and say, how many people do you think work? You know, they think, all oh, farmers, there aren't many of them. There are four million people work on food. Four million. Only just short of half a million in farming, half a million in food manufacturing, 1.2 million in shops, food shops, 1.7 rising 1.8 in catering. Catering has exploded. There are more, there's more money made out of logistics, moving food about than there is from farming itself. So we have so many people working in what might be called the food industry, and yet, as a country, we still have food poverty. Is that right? Yes, it is. I mean, food and social aspects of food is a key, indeed a a very sensitive area, of contemporary food policy. In the 1930s, um, the dominant thinking of food policy was that To deal with hunger, all we needed to do was to produce more food. Whether you were talking about India, which was the equivalent then of Africa, you know, the the continent or subcontinent that people worry about, or you were talking about Middlesbrough in England, there was hunger. And the assumption was that this was the number one driver for food policy. The food policy was really about trying to get enough food to provide enough nutrients for people who couldn't afford it. And partly that took, as all areas of policy, it took us beyond the area of food. It meant that actually you know, you've got to have people with work. That's a macroeconomic issue for policy. Um, But nonetheless, there are food elements which are about food. Britain's farming in the 1930s was in recession. It was suffering from decisions made in the 1840s, the repeal of the Corn Laws, to stop trying to protect our food system and to basically use British imperial power and get colonies to feed us. That's what had happened. Um, And World War I shook it up, uh, uh, and uh, there was a regrowth of trying to invest in farming a bit. But then after World War I, 1919, as a famous um, civil servant and minister said, you know, we need to return to business as usual. Well, that meant more hunger and meant more farming recession. So hunger is still 21st century. Here we are uh, in, in 2019. Hunger is a huge factor, both in the world generally in fact, the last two years, the number of people uh, in acute hunger has gone up. It's been rising after a few years of dropping. And the same is true here. We are in the fifth richest economy on the planet, Britain. And the same is true here. We have food banks. I mean, this is astonishing. We have actually very low unemployment, but that's because the welfare system has been cut back and people have been forced, in quotes, uh, in other words, encouraged by the politicians and the policymakers on economics to go into work, whatever it is, the gig economy, the low-waged economy. And so you have this paradox of 
in a rich society, people with very tight income flows but fixed outflows, housing, tax, all those sort of fixed expenditure, children, etc. And so food is often, as we say in food policy, food is a flexible item in the household budget. So it's a thing that can be squeezed. Uh, and hence the rise of food banks, hence the rise of food, food, modern food poverty. So you're right, food poverty is a, it's almost, to use the German word, it's a leitmotif in food policy. It keeps mm. on coming up. Mm. We think we've cracked it and then back it comes. It's also connected, food is very strongly connected with health as well. Is that part of the policy thinking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why in, in our centre at City University of London, where I work, um, the Centre for Food Policy, which was and still is the only um, uh, simply named Centre for Food Policy, but now around the world there are hundreds of people who work in food policy. We've been actually, in a little way, quite important in articulating this as a uh, a separate area for academic discussion, but also a focus for the modern world everywhere, not just in uh, poor regions of the world. Um, health has been one of the big, big drivers of modern food policy. Uh, but it's not the only one. But we now know, I mean, back onto hunger, um, uh, it, the, the current figures are about 850 million people suffering from diet-related hunger, uh, uh, ill health uh, from that as well uh, but there are two, two and a half billion people suffering from obesity and overweight and the, the slow diseases that follow that at the extreme with hunger you get kwashiakura and premature death from literally malnutrition absence or sort of under absence of nutrition but we now have a modern form of malnutrition bad nutrition uh, meaning people are uh, uh, getting increasingly overweight and then having slow diseases. Diabetes type 2 has run away. Uh, we've had for 35 years very solid evidence on what we call the whole pattern of non-communicable diseases, diet-related ill health, coronary heart disease, strokes, etc. But diabetes has now run away. Um, even in some of the poorest countries of the world, we're now finding uh, obesity and overweight. Oh, that's interesting, because you connect it with a richer nation such as the UK. It's, these are diseases of relative affluence versus relative poverty. In sub-Saharan Africa, there's, I think, now 7% clinical overweight and obesity. You, that's mm. not what the British public would expect, but mm. that's what we find. Mm. And you'll find it within the same households. You'll have malnutrition and overnutrition. Uh, this is, you know, uh, it's a source of immense interest and immense worry to anyone who thinks long-term or short-term about food. Does so back, it's back to this theme I tried to set out when you asked me what is food policy. It's about integrating all these big areas, diet and health, environment and health, society and, and food and food is always at the middle. Food and jobs, food and health, food and environment, food and social justice, food and ethics. You know, it doesn't matter what you think about, food is one of those places where these huge issues, which um, 
in both in academia and in government and in corporate life and indeed in culture, we segment and we say, oh, well, that's a health problem. Oh, well, it isn't. A health problem is a societal problem. A societal problem is an economic problem. They all connect. And that's what modern food policy does, is try to pick over and pick out the factors that shape the, the outcomes of the food system and make the connections in a way that doesn't harm another area. So it's, there's no good resolving the problem of food and health if you're creating a problem in food and the environment. And that's what we've done, actually, very successfully. In fact, if there's anything I'm associated with, it's uh, what we call the food wars and the paradigmatic shift. Um, in uh, a book I wrote with one of my colleagues uh, 20 years ago, nearly, or started working on it 20 years ago, we argued that uh, the whole apparent success of the 1930s and 40s thinking about food policy uh, has now become the seeds of its own downfall. The, and the success was in the 30s and the 40s, the evidence about diet as being a huge factor in, in, in poverty, it's obvious at one level, but how was that and what could we do about it? And what we call the productionist paradigm was the way of thinking, say, well, we've got hunger, the answer to it is just produce more food. So we need to produce lots more food. So we'll subsidise fertilisers, subsidise agrochemicals, subsidise farmers to keep them on the land and so on, just do anything to raise productivity and production. Hence we called it the productionist paradigm. Uh, but within 20 years of the end of the Second World War, the evidence was emerging, the beginnings actually of evidence, can you believe it, about coronary heart disease rates rising, but also the beginnings of the evidence about the impact of agrochemicals. So there is an example of where it was a, a really sane, humane, just, progressive, call it what you like, food policy of saying, let's produce more food because it will resolve the problem of hunger, whether the hunger was in India, which is what people were worried about then, now India exports food, uh, or, or the problem of Teesside and, and the, the big cities. Um, actually, now, agriculture is one of the disaster zones for the environment, undermining health, which is why, you know, in our centre, I, again, with colleagues, we've articulated what we call ecological public health, putting environment and human health together, requires a much more complicated approach no, that's a pompous way of putting it. Oh, actually, if we want to be a pompous, we call it a multi-criteria approach. You don't just say production is the king. You've got to be thinking across society, social values, environment, health, uh, economy, and so on, um, in order to try and think through how can food play a place in the relationship between planet Earth and this little species of humans who've taken it over, basically. So, actually, you can look at almost every country in the world, and one of the privileges of my working life is I've been to many, many countries, and talk with people at the top or at the bottom or on the side and wherever you go, and they share the same problems. But there is, um, they're different but the same. Mm. Everyone is having to address climate change. Some are doing it more openly, others 
with great reluctance. You know, mm. the United States is refusing to deal with it at the moment. Norway is dealing with it. Its sovereign oil funders said we're going to stop investing in oil. I mean, this is a fund made from oil saying we've got to pull out of the carbon economy. And that's kind of a symbol of what is going on inside inside food policy, actually. And in the how UK? can we eat differently and how can we do things differently and what does it mean and what strategic choices are we going to have to make? In the UK, to answer your question, we're not doing that. And some of us are very angry about it and very um, irritated about it because in 2007-8, there was a moment where we began to do it. And that was very when, sorry, simply... Sorry, when you say do it, do what? I'll tell you. Yeah. 2007, 2008, there was an oil crisis. The commodity price of oil and all commodities doubled in one year. It was the banking crisis. Uh, and suddenly, in the G8, the rich world, Britain part of that, there was complete shock. I was actually on not one but three government bodies at the time, and I saw it inside right to prime ministerial level. They'd all seen uh, food as a problem for Africa, not us. And there was literally a palpable sense of, holy Moses, you mean this is affecting us? You mean our food prices will go up? Because part of the productionist paradigm was about producing more to bring food prices down so as to make it more affordable for people who are poor or struggling. And yet here we were, still with people poor and struggling, even though food was historically incredibly low priced compared to uh, incomes and so on. And uh, this led, this 2007-8, led to an extraordinary and, and really honourable attempt by the British state to say, actually, we might have to do something about this. Uh, and I would tell a little example of how that was. I was on a Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, working party. A small group of us brought together by an ex-Ministry of Defence person uh, via the Cabinet Office uh, to try and think about Britain and food security, which is a long interest of mine. And I was on this little working group. We couldn't get anyone across the British government interested. Not a person except this seconded person from the Ministry of Defence to uh, uh, the Cabinet Office, whose idea it was. And then in 2007, the entire British state came around. The Welsh government, the Scottish government, <laughs> right across Whitehall, they all piled in and said, now what are we going to do about this? You know, And actually... That was just one thing. This was a project. But, I mean, wow, things went on. The cabinet review was set up when Gordon Brown replaced uh, uh, Tony Blair. The, the first task he asked the strategy unit of the cabinet office to look at was food. And the Food Matters project was done. I was appointed to it. Uh, uh, and... Um, uh, one of my ex one of my students actually was one of the people inside the cabinet office doing it, so I was very privileged access to that. And there was the state was engaged. That was the 10 state years was ago. suddenly engaged with yeah. that process and talked to companies and companies who'd been saying actually we need to do something about climate change. Suddenly they had a government that was listing, whereas previously the government had said food that's up to you, that's the food business, that's interesting. As long as you're producing enough, keeping prices down, it's your business. Okay other than food safety, which would have been a crisis about in the 80s and 90s. So from 2007 to 10, there was a rapid explosion of policy development. Really extraordinary, actually. 
um, ending up in a document called or a, a national strategy signed by the Prime Minister uh, in January 2010 called Food 2030. If you go and look at that, you'll see everything we should have been doing for the last 10 years. When the Labour government lost the election, to its surprise, the uh, new government came in and just closed it. Full stop. It was closed within a year. It closed also, it stripped out advisory bodies. The Sustainable Development Commission was abolished. I was actually a commissioner on that for food and land use. And the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, the longest state advisory body on environmental policy anywhere in the Western world was abolished. And literally for 10 years nearly we've had nothing. But now... uh, because of Brexit, Brexit is bringing it out again. You know, Britain's got a security problem. Britain's got all these problems. Food poverty, the government for the last few years has just said, well, let charity deal with that, let food banks deal with that, let churches deal with it, let voluntary action deal with it, a sort of 19th century answer to it, of which I'm very critical. It doesn't work, ultimately. Um, But uh, uh, they... Uh, what the Conservative government called a political heavyweight, Mr. Michael Gove, was put in to be Secretary of State at DEFRA. England, in other words. Scotland, meanwhile, had begun to be developing a food policy, the Good Food Nation. Wales had set up the rural um, strategy, and also, most interestingly, most progressively, had created the Future Generations Act, that any legislation in Wales must be thinking about two generations ahead, future-proofing everything. So Wales and Scotland actually had got very interesting policy developments going on. The problem was England. England was doing nothing. So enter Michael Gove. He uh, basically says we've got to shake everything up. He's a shaker-upper. He's a disruptor. Um, And uh, to his credit, he listened to environmental movements and basically said, "Okay, we'll sweep away the common agricultural policy and we will create... Uh, a new Agriculture Act, agriculture, not food, notice, uh, and make that environmental land management, which is great. It's thinking about the land and ecosystems, but food was absent. The Health and Harmony paper didn't talk about food. The only time health was featured was on the front cover and actually meant health of ecosystems, not health of humans destroying ecosystems or eating them. Uh, and so some of us had real goes at Mr. Gove. And to his credit, he listened uh, and asked, shoehorned in, Henry Dimbleby, a very nice guy, I rate him very highly, who'd done some interest, very good work for Mr. Gove when he was at education on school meals. And uh, Gove appointed Henry Dimbleby to his board and said, would you run a strategy, work out a strategy on food? Um, So right now we're in the middle of... uh, a very interesting time. We don't know what really is going on in the Brexit crisis, but something will eventually happen. Um, and Henry has been asked to do this process, and we think, in fact, you're recording me on the day Henry Dimbleby asked me to be in London to have a brainstorm about what should this be and where should it go, although the architecture of this inquiry is, is in place. So there's going to be something, but we've wasted 10 years. And that's the history of food policy, actually, you get a gain, then you lose. Ministers come, they die, the expertise goes. You know, I, I had the privilege of meeting some of the people who were in in the 1940s, and they were very old, you know, and they used to say, 
just think radically. These were really respectable knights, dames, people who'd been right in there helping create the war effort and post-war reconstruction. And, you know, I was in a, running a think tank at the time and it was a whole group of new food policy thinking in which I was one. Um, and they would just say, think bigger, think more radically. Of course, I thought, you know, we're being quite radical. So these people, and the more I've learned and seen over my working life, the more I understand why that generation gently encouraged people like me and my generation and said, think bigger, go harder, and be also, more radical. And think of future generations, just as you said, the Welsh legislation. Yeah, the Welsh which, legislation is really important. Which also brings us to organic in terms of the care of the soil that's growing the food, the future-proofing the soil is a, a nasty way of putting it, but building up the soil so we've got harvests for future generations. Absolutely, and again, to, to its credit, DEFRA, the English problem, has begun to think about that. When I was a commissioner on the Sustainable Development Commission 2006 to 11, when we were abolished, um, I went round DEFRA uh, and, uh, you know, the, the soil structure was absent. And, uh, you know, the good thing is there is more awareness of the importance of soil again. But you think about it. British soil science was stupendous and was eviscerated. Mm. Imperial College London closed Y College, one of the oldest agricultural colleges specialising in soil and other things. You know, the British have this default position left over from the early 19th century that we don't think about food. Food is something you shovel in your face. So if we don't deal with soil, we can't deal with the long term. Uh, so, I mean, it's back to the central thing I've been trying to present, food policy is being about. It's about making connections. The decisions that have impacts on your food are about connecting soil to human health, you know, the Caris Society was created as you know, 1930s thinkers. They were part of this, um, of realising the connection between soil, food, and human health. It's not just that if you have good soil, you will eat a good life. That's what they thought. It's not true. You can have great conditioned soil and die prematurely from diet-related disease because you're over and mal-consuming. We know much more about the, the pathways and the drivers, or as we would say, determinants of, of your health. Not least we know more about genetics, uh, but it's, genetics is not the crucial issue, actually. It's about how we eat and what we do, and what we do with our bodies and whether we burn the food. Your role advising governments around the world, but particularly our own government, how do you answer people who say, are we not creating the nanny state that tells us how to eat and what to eat? I don't advise governments at all, actually. I mean, my role stopped with a, an abrupt stop in 2011. I had a little moment on the sort of outer circle, uh, you know, the Cabinet Office review, and, uh, well, that was in the side, actually, but the Sustainable Development Commission and uh, the Secretary of State, Hilary Benn, to his credit, took up an idea that uh, our centre had promoted that there should be a National Advisory Council on food because other countries had done it. Norway had one, for example. And, and we reviewed all of those. And to their credit, they set it up. Uh, but then it was abolished in the bonfire of 2010-2011. Uh, uh, 
Um, so I, I, don't, I don't advise governments at all. I have no I, role at all. Am I muddling food and diet? No. Am I asking no. the wrong question? No, you're yeah. not asking the wrong question. Uh, uh, my working life has been about the connections between all of it. I'm a generalist, if you like. I'm interested in the, the dynamics of the food system and what we can do to make sure there are good outcomes rather than bad outcomes and trying to decide what is good and what is bad. And your question about uh, is, is this too much of the nanny state, to which I'll just say, well, okay, you want the nanny corporation. Just, you know, the advertising budget of the food industry is vast compared to anything to do with health from the state. There is no nanny state, actually. Um, there's a nanny corporation. A huge, an avalanche of messages is coming out all the time. And with new social media, insidiously all the time, targeting all ages, shaping what they think is food, and food and fun. Uh, this isn't nanny state. It's actually, I wouldn't even call it nanny corporation. And anyway, let me just put in a word for nannies. Call them parents, and people usually like them, actually. Uh, uh, the nanny state criticism, which is associated with the right wing, was actually a left-wing argument of saying it was worried about the state responding too much to capitalism. Uh, so it's a very interesting example itself of how ideas change and switch around politics, actually. But that's a bit of a deviation. But there is a really hard issue. I mean, I'm waving my arms as I'm talking which doesn't come across in a podcast. Uh, I've actually just finished a book for Penguin, uh, which is going to come out uh, probably in the new year, about what I think Britain should be doing, and have revisited all the figures. I mean, it is vast overspending on marketing. And it's, if it was all fruit and vegetables and eat a lean, decent diet, one could say, well, okay, fair enough. It isn't. It's for highly processed food products, high in salt, sugar, and fat. And the academic studies that show that and the intervention trials show the effectiveness of that marketing. But then you're touching the relationship between state and corporation, or state and the... You are, and the state doesn't want to deal with the corporation. No, no. It doesn't want to deal with advertising. I'd tax advertising tomorrow. I would reduce, constrain it dramatically. The argument of the advertising industry across Europe, and it won the fight at the European level, was that it was about freedom. Mm. And the notion that uh, freedom can become unlicensed pollution of culture and damage health, that did not feature in the European debate at all. And it needs to feature in the British debate. And how optimistic are you about the future? Uh, I'm, I always quote my... Uh, uh, departed mother um, who said I was a well uh, I was a breech baby I came out backwards not once but twice uh, as she said uh, not that I remember it obviously um, I'm an optimist despite the data and I blame my mother for that optimism uh, I the indicators are terrible uh, I've spent the last three years on the Lancet Commission reviewing literally a very simple question. We were asked by The Lancet three years ago, the medical journal. Could we feed a healthy diet to 10 billion people by 2050? And I must say, I thought the answer would be no. And the answer is, yes, we could, we can, uh, and, and do it without, sorry. Could we feed 10 billion people healthily by 2050 
without damaging ecosystems? The answer is, and I thought we couldn't, and the answer would be no, the answer is yes, but it has to be a dramatic shift in diet. Uh, a, a really big drop in meat and dairy consumption from Western levels, and a drop in how we produce that meat. And uh, actually there are some very contentious things in that report. Uh, well, actually some of the meat industry obviously hasn't liked it, um, but that we expected. Uh, but actually we said that we think that fish consumptions, fish production's got to be raised. Well, actually the seas are in a terrible condition. Probably the only way you can raise fish is by aquaculture, not sea culture. Uh, and, but there are some, for garden organic and for the horticultural area, extremely good news. Fruit and vegetable production has got to rise 75%. Uh, 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 legume production, massively up. Uh, seeds and nuts, massively up. So actually for plant growth, very, very positive news comes out of that. Um, but it's uh, raising a world or suggesting a world of where diversity of diet is going to be a very important principle to protect diversity of ecosystems. We can't just go on ploughing up ever more land, chopping down ever more forests. We've got to reforest and wood the world, actually. Um, and we've got to stop exploiting the seas to allow them to recover. Um, so am I an optimist? Yes, but I don't see the policy frameworks delivering it yet. But it's staggering from this Eat Lancet report, which had huge global publicity. Uh, there are countries, whole countries, New Zealand, a meat producer, is now beginning to address it and has set up a policy process to reflect on it. Um, in Britain, we haven't got that, but I'm hoping the Dimbleby process will do that. And indeed, I can say, we had a, a private seminar um, at his request with Henry Dimbleby and a lot of people around that. The excellent Food Farming and Countryside Commission that the Royal Society of Arts has run for the last two and a half years. There's a coming together of processes in Britain which are, uh, give me grounds for optimism. But I'm always an optimist, despite the data. I think it's because you're a gardener as well, Professor Lang. You're president of Garden Organic. Clearly, organic growing is very important to you. But also, you're gardening and you started as a farmer some years ago? I, well, I didn't start as a farmer. I was actually an academic, but I got very interested in farming and went farming in the 70s um, and was an organic farmer. Um, and uh, when I stopped farming for all sorts of reasons, I carried on you know, being committed to being an organic gardener. And I'm, in, in fact, incredibly proud and a member of... Uh, Garden Organic. I think it's a really important organisation. Not big enough and not powerful enough uh, because it's, there are nine million gardeners in Britain and we're not reaching them enough. Um, and actually, well, there's a, a Dave Goulson, one of my favourite modern British academics who's you know, known for writing about bees and things, but is actually a really good um, zoologist, botanist, biologist, polymath, um, has a, a new book coming out and has written a briefing paper for us uh, uh, the, a series we run from the Centre for Food Policy on the Food Research Collaboration about how gardens are really now the havens of wildlife 
And we've got to celebrate that and extend that. Farming is, is just not, not destroyed, but is seriously damaged, as it was asked to do. I'm an ex-farmer and I defend farmers, but we've got to get them off that treadmill and shift it. But right now, gardeners are the wildlife's hotspots, and we've got to build that. Um, and I've been visiting gardens, uh, mostly in North Wales, and specialist wildlife uh, sort of land users who are really trying to pioneer that and so I think in Garden Organic we've got a really important role actually which is about integrating wildlife to food production and I, mean, I was on a panel recently uh, and I say this frequently both publicly and privately and I said look uh, one of the reasons I still defend organics and support organics is because I think it's the best news for biodiversity actually and the more diversity we can get into the garden and down our throats, the better. Biodiversity in the field to our throats. In one sentence, I would say that would be the message I'd really like to get across. Because then you you start looking at food differently, and uh, and you're eating plants, plants, not dead animals. On that note, Professor Lang, thank you very much. I know what a busy man you are, and it's been a great pleasure listening to you. Pleasure. We have lots to do.